Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Calling all federal employees wanting to test their cyber metal. Tomorrow is the last day for teams of two to five people to sign up for the fifth annual President's Cup Cybersecurity Competition. Individual competitors have until February 6th. For why this is a really important program, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the competition's section chief at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Michael Harpin. It's a capture-the-flag format, so that's pretty standard in the the competition space. But for those who don't know, it gives uh, individuals a, a task that they have to solve within a virtual machine. So for us in the President's Cup, it's it's very simple for all of our participants. All they need is an access to the Internet and a, and a web browser. And through going to cisa.gov slash President's Cup, they'll be able to find ways to register and, and then start playing in the competition. So we make it very lightweight for our, our participants to play. You mentioned team sizes. It has to be two to five, right? So two is our minimum and five is our maximum. And it can be from uh, any individuals from across uh, the federal government. So we're seeing a lot of mixed teams in the competition. We've seen the Postal Service join with some Department of Defense individuals. We've even seen some mixed teams of uh, military branches. Still no teams that have Army and Navy individuals on the same, same group, though. Our individuals competition is split into two tracks. The track A focusing on defensive uh, work roles and tasks, and track B focusing on offensive work roles and tasks. And we, we split that up just because there are different special specialties that we see. Some of the individuals that we see as repeat finalists, they, they, they're smart enough that they're going to make it into uh, make it into the finals of both. But it's important to understand that as well for our individuals competition that we split those up into defensive and offensive work roles and tasks. This year, what is the goal of the capture of the flag? Because each year is a little different. I remember in years past, there were specific objectives, specific tasks you had to do. Uh, I imagine you don't want to give me too much because you don't want to ruin the surprise. But from a high level, how was this year's maybe looking different than previous years? How creative did you get to where were you able to be? The competition this year, as it has been in years past, all of our challenges are created by the Software Engineering Institute out of Carnegie Mellon, SEI. So every year we start our challenge development cycles, looking at new vulnerabilities that have come out that year, looking at some relevant topics to the cybersecurity community. So we take a look at CISA's key exploited vulnerabilities catalog, the KEV catalog. We look at that to see what we can put in there that's testable within our infrastructure. We have some challenges this year that are focusing on zero trust architecture as well, you know, because that, that, that's a highly relevant topic within, uh, within the community. And, and on top of that, you know, we're always looking to, to push the limits within our competitions. We're going to incorporate some physical uh, ICS escape room challenges into our team's finals that we host in person at CISA facilities the week of April 15th. Uh, so we're really looking forward to these incorporating these new new wrinkles, giving new vulnerabilities out to our participants. Now, Michael, you said zero trust, so buzzword one, bingo, ding, ding, ding. But you didn't say AI. Uh, imagine there's uh, some AI in there somewhere because there has to be. How different is this from previous years? I mean, each year I know you try to build on it, but you can't give you apples one year and pizza the next year, or can you? 
Yeah, a lot of the tasks and fundamental parts of cybersecurity are going to stay the same every year. You know, network security, you know, computers are, are, are functioning the same, right? AI is obviously a new wrinkle that we have to incorporate some of those large language models and, and using those within our challenges. So, so we do touch on that a little bit. But we also do want to, you know, a lot of the fundamental skills that we see within the workforce, we want to continue to, to assess and test within the competition. You know, those are always key to see within not just uh, the competition, but also to see within in workforce development. So, yeah, it, it's a new flavor uh, to the pizza every year, but there is, that is always on the menu. We always do have to test those fundamental key skills uh, within the cybersecurity community. Now, I want to be clear, if you win, you don't, you, there's no money here. There's just good bragging rights, which I know if you correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's a, a team from the Army. Uh, it's three, three years in a row, maybe? The team from the Army, there are individuals who have been on the, every winning team we, we've, uh, we've had in the competition. So this is our fifth year of the competition. The Army has won the team's competition every year. We've had a lot of Department of Defense representation within the, the uh, winner's circle every year. So last year, we did see an individual from the FBI who placed within our defensive competition. That was the first time we've seen that. We're seeing the competition grow as well, too. So this year, we're allowing uh, individuals to, to register by their agency and not just their department, as we've done in years past. And we're seeing a lot of growth within the competition, who's been out there playing. And uh, we think that's also going to give some some representation, some additional representation uh, to these other agencies and probably, you know, in the finals uh, and in our winner's circle that they can represent the agency that they work for uh, and not just at the high level department level. And I imagine it also says, well, if, if I'm somebody who says I'm not really a cybersecurity expert, but I can go do that, those, those past challenges and then maybe realize, hey, maybe I do have some aptitude for this. And it's a way for you all to say, hey, just because you don't have cybersecurity at the end of your name doesn't mean you can't do cybersecurity. I heard this recently that, you know, agencies are starting to say, okay, we want some aptitude of people who maybe didn't get prop, you know, formally trained, but could really be great problem solvers, which a lot of what cybersecurity is. Is that the other kind of big benefit you're hoping comes from having holding competitions like this? Yeah, absolutely. And we see that within our competitors. Uh, obviously, uh, our finalists are always going to have a, uh, a strong technical background, and we see that we are our best performing uh, competitors. But within the competition, you have a session timer, so there's, there's a range of time you have within the competition to start it. We give you eight days, but once you start your session, you have a certain amount of time to complete as many challenges as you can. As you can. It's six hours in teams and four hours in individuals. And so not only do we see individuals with a strong technical background, but time management, uh, prioritization. Can they research, AKA Google, their, the, the things they're stuck on well? Uh, with the teams, and we see it in finals uh, in person, are they communicating well? Or are they splitting up and each person is, is solving their own challenges? We see a lot of success on those, in those teams that can communicate, work together, and solve those problems. So there are some of those soft skills that assist as well in winning the competition. But then, you know, like you said, if you don't have uh, cybersecurity in your in your job title, you can use our challenges to see, hey, what does it look like? What does ransomware do? What does it look like? You know, you can get in there and see, hey, what does it look like to, to properly set up IPv6 in a network? We have uh, those kind of challenges if people are interested, if they're, you know, learning these new concepts 
uh, maybe they're in a cybersecurity agency but don't have that type of a work role, they could at least play our challenges to understand a little bit of what are those topics that we're working on within our organization. Do I need permission from my manager? Do I need to get approval? Do I do this during work hours? Do I do this on my own weekends and nights? What does CISA recommend? And it's probably yes to all of the above. So we, we encourage everyone to, to, to get in and play. Any federal employee, we encourage you to play in the President's Cup. And then uh, if they have all that information, times is all through CISA.gov slash President's Cup and the links to, to, to get to our competition site and enroll. You know, we're, we're trying to get that encouragement from supervisors, you know, CISA and our cybersecurity division. We encourage our supervisors. Obviously, operational need comes first and prior is a priority, but it's a great opportunity to highlight some unique skill sets in the federal workforce. And it's it's also hard in everyday work to really you know, verify that negative. Did you properly set up your network? Did you defend that threat? And you know, while the competition, yes, it's a game and it's a gaming environment, but it still has those real world tasks within it. And this gives them an opportunity to shine. So yes, we encourage everyone to play, get your hands on, get some experience. And we also encourage, you know, all throughout the federal government, you know, giving your workforce an opportunity to shine and get recognized uh, and play and make those changes and support them to allow them to play in the competition. Michael Harpin, the competition's section chief of the Cyber Defense Education and Training Branch at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more details in Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.